Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Christian Sager. And I'm Joe McCormick. And our regular host, Robert Lamb, is out on vacation this week. So this is Baby's first solo flight. Yeah, this is our first time, the two of us, since we joined the show uh, early in 2015, the two of us doing an episode without Robert. And we knew this was coming up because it was a scheduled vacation. We also knew that The X-Files is coming back on January. This isn't a commercial. I didn't get paid by Fox to do this. January 24th, I think it's a Sunday. Joe and I are crazy X-Files fans. We basically talk about the X-Files... I would say at least once a day with each other. Yeah, we've referenced it on the show a decent amount of times, too. And I think that's been basically because pretty much since we took over as as hosts on the show, I think we've both been going back through the back catalog of, of mm-hmm. the X-Files on Netflix. My wife, Rachel, and I have been watching them. And it has been so much fun. Yeah, uh, I'm the same. I've been rewatching them along with Kumail Nanjiani's podcast, The X-Files Files. Uh, and just loving every second of it. But, um, so this is our two part X-Files extravaganza where we're going to talk about the science of the X-Files, really kind of the perfect angle for stuff to blow your mind. Right. Because it, it's weird. It's interesting. It's sort of about the strangeness of reality and it, and it hits all of our big themes here. I'd, I'd say what we do on the show is science, the bizarre and big questions and mysteries. Yeah. And that's sort of what the show is all about, though, with an with an admittedly conspiratorial kind of angle. If you're yeah. not familiar with the X-Files, we hope you'll still be able to enjoy this episode anyway. So just to give a brief setup of what the show is. There are two FBI agents named uh, Mulder and Scully. Mulder is David Duchovny. Scully is Gillian Anderson. Mm-hmm. Gillian or Gillian? Gillian. I, I think it depends because uh, you know she's she's uh, I believe like half British or something like that. So maybe it's Gillian when she's on the Fall and Gillian when she's on Hannibal. <laughs> I'll just have to call her Scully. Yeah. Uh, so Mulder and Scully are are investigating paranormal phenomena for the FBI. And Mulder is a true believer. He believes in whatever you could believe in. He believes in it. Mm-hmm. Psychic powers, alien abductions, pyrokinesis, whatever it is. Yeah, he he's on board. Yep. And Scully is a skeptic. She's a scientific skeptic. And she always wants to come up with an explanation of phenomena based on what we actually know about science rather than referring to unproven phenomena that are just sort of speculative. Like, yeah. Alien abductions and pyrokinesis. She's usually trying to find some kind of empirical way to figure out what happened. Whereas Mulder just goes with these hunches. And let's be honest here, like nine times out of ten, Mulder's hunch is a 100% correct. Oh, it's more than nine (laughs) times out of ten. It's every single time. We were were struggling to think of an episode where the skeptical viewpoint turns out to be correct. It never does. I think there's a couple. Oh, man. And I'd also say, too, that Scully's character along the way, as she is exposed to more and more of this stuff, she becomes less of a skeptic and more of like... She's willing to believe as long as there's quantifiable evidence yeah. available to her. Right? Well, as one should be. I mean, yeah. that's sort of the spirit of skepticism. It's not that you should never believe. Right. It's that you shouldn't believe until until you've got a good reason to. That reminds me of my desktop here at work on my laptop that I'm reading off of now. It's that picture of Scully and it says Our Lady of Skepticism. <laughs> she is she is a wonderful patron saint and a good guiding light for us on this show because while as we've said on the the show the x-files it's 
pretty much always the paranormal or the aliens or whatever that yeah. turns out to be true. What we do on Stuff to Blow Your Mind is often look at strange phenomena and try to understand what a scientific explanation for that phenomena is or could be. Yeah, I think if Scully was born like 20 you know, years later, she would have been a great podcast host rather than an <laughs> FBI agent. She probably would have found herself working at How Stuff Works. Uh, she's very she's very taciturn. Um, so we should mention at the top here yeah. that we have one primary resource uh, that we're using on these episodes, and we, we'd like to give a shout out to that, especially though we're, we're going to bring in some other sources, too. But our but our best resource on this was a book by Jean Cavellos called The Science of the X-Files. It was published in 1998. Jean Cavellos is an astrophysicist and mathematician, now a science and science fiction writer. And we, I was, I, I've been enjoying this book. This it's is great, isn't it? Yeah, it's a well-researched yeah. book. Uh, one thing about it, though, is that it was written in 1998, and plenty of science has changed since then. So we'll also be trying to update and incorporate new sources to yep. go along with some of the leads that she established in this book. Which, we by did our and large, best to double check whether the the facts that she said in 1998 were either still accurate or maybe there had been some new scientific discoveries since then. Yeah, yeah, and there was another book. There, there were two books that were published in the 90s about the science of the X-Files. It was such a popular show then. It makes sense. The other one is called The Real Science of the X-Files, Microbes, Meteorites, and Mutants. And unfortunately, we couldn't get a hold of a copy of this. And, I, you know, I stupidly was like, oh, yeah, I'll just download one of these to my Kindle or something like that. Nope, uh-huh. they're not available on Kindle. They're out of print. But luckily, the local library uh, here in we, we live in, well, I live in Decatur, Georgia. You're in Atlanta now. Uh, but, uh, it had a copy, so I was able to reserve it and we've been sharing it and it's, you know, I gotta say, not only is it great for these episodes that we're going to do about the science of the X-Files, but there are topics in there that she just kind of casually brings up that I'm like, oh, this is great fodder for future episodes of stuff yeah. to blow your mind. So I think we're mark gonna, that for later. Yeah. This is a rich resource for us. Well, I think we should actually get into some of the topics, some of yep. these, uh, some of these episodes of the X files and what we can say about the science behind them or the not so scientific concepts behind them. Uh, and, and at least find some kind of foothold in the real world. So if we're going to start, we've got to start with what is probably the most recognized monster of the week for the X-Files, and that is, of course, the Fluke Man. If you have never seen the Fluke Man, pause this right now. Yeah, Google Go, go and Google Fluke Man yeah. and look at a picture of this monster. I love this monster design. It looks to me, I've said this before, like a toilet paper mummy that got wet <laughs> and yeah. has lipstick yeah. on. So it's got this puckering open mouth with red lips, creepy eyes, and then this kind of like melted white exterior. Yeah, um I posted a photo of Fluke Man to our Facebook page yesterday as sort of a a, a hint as to what we were going to be working on this week. And there were a lot of people who engaged with it and either got really excited about because they recognized it from the X-Files or, or they or, condemned us to yeah. hell. Yeah, cuz like, they were just so grossed out show me by this. It. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so the premise of Fluke Man, the episode that Fluke Man appears in is called The Host. Yeah. And I believe it's right at the beginning of the second season. Uh-huh. Um, and so, th- I, 
we're we're going to try not to spoil the show, but also this show is like 20 years old at this point, you know. Oh yeah. We're we're, we're going to basically describe to you the premise of these episodes pretty quickly and then dive into the science of 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 how they work. Right. So the premise of the host, the host episode is that there's a creature that arrives in the United States. Uh, I believe it comes over on a Russian oil tanker. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's a, or maybe it's a freighter. It's a ship yeah. crossing the the ocean. It comes from a Russian ship. And it is believed to be coming from Chernobyl, I believe. Yeah, I think there's like either toxic, like a combination of like sewage and like uh, radioactive waste from Chernobyl in the ship or something. Why are they bringing that across the ocean? They're probably just going to dump it in the ocean, man. Right. They want to dump it off the coast of New Jersey. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, sure enough. It, they do, and uh, or well, actually, it begins with this guy gets dragged into the sludge because the fluke man's in there, right? Uh, uh, but then there seems to be a phenomenon emerging after this mm-hmm. of something going on in the New Jersey sewers, right? Right, yeah. So there's basically this creature that's crawling around in there. It's emerging, and it's either feeding on humans or it's biting them and infecting them with their parasitic young. And there's this infamous scene from it where there's a guy who was bitten by it. Uh, and, and he's in the shower and he just starts coughing up fluke worms and it's so disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even now, like I rewatched it recently and it's pretty disgusting. I can't believe that they got away with it at the time. Eventually the implication is that this is some sort of strange mutant hybrid of, uh, it's like a fluke and a yeah. human. <clears throat> Somewhere in between. That somehow the radioactivity affected the regular fluke worm, flatworm, which is also known as a trematode. Uh, these are basically parasites that feed off hosts. They're real things. And they usually attach themselves to our, well, in human cases, to our internal organs. But you can find them occasionally attached to your exterior as well. So there's a human liver fluke, right? Yeah, it's called Clonarchus sinensis. And this is one of the ones that Cavellos uh, mainly focuses on in her examination of fluke man. But this is a flatworm that wants to get inside your body and make yep. a comfortable little nest in your liver. It's 100% real and... And it is, you know, as with many of the parasites that we've covered on stuff to blow your mind over the years. Yeah. Its goal is to go through a reproductive cycle and uh, a life cycle within a host. Right. Hence the Mm -hmm. title, the host. Um, So this particular fluke worm, it only becomes an adult once it gets inside a human being and is in our bile duct or another. Wait, not just a human being. Yeah, Yeah, any mammal. Uh, And the way that they get in us is by eating fish. By uh, us eating fish. Us eating so fish. So the mammal eats the fish that carries the fluke. The fluke gets in you and says, I've done it. I've made it. Time to mature. <laughs> right. Right. Time yeah. to become a man, become a fluke man. And basically what they do is they once they're inside a mammal, they eat the tissue and the blood uh, close to your liver. Um, so this is another common X-Files theme is that livers are tasty. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. We'll talk about that again later. <laughs> so the fluke, real flukes, release their larva into your bile duct. And they're hermaphrodites. Uh, so they have both male and female sex organs. And these larvae leave uh, mammal bodies through feces. And then a snail come, comes along and eats the feces. So the larva gets inside the snail. And then if the snail is eaten by a fish or, you know, some other kind of marine animal, uh, then it is infested with these larvae, which subsequently end up inside a 
us or a bear or, or, or a dog or uh, whatever. It's a complicated life cycle. Yeah, and it's man, parasites are amazing. I know, like the Robert has gushed uh, a lot about them on the show, but I agree with them. Like they have such specialized life systems that they've evolved into to to uh, connect with very particular kinds of hosts yeah. too. And it's we'll find this sweet with some of the other in a way. Examples. Yeah, yeah, that's nice. Um, so here's the thing: when they get inside these fish. They're inside these cysts that they formed that are like protective, I guess, bubbles is a good way to describe them, right? So what happens if you turn that fish into some sushi? Well, if you eat raw fish, then that cyst is inside your body and it emerges and uh, turns into its adult form of the fluke worm. So one of the things that uh, Cavalos notes that we we should probably mention is that the, the title fluke man that's given to this creature Probably is not accurate because this creature would have both male and female organs, right? Right. It's a misnomer. So it's not really a fluke man. It's a fluke person. But, you know, here's some nerdy X-Files knowledge for you. Uh, my favorite, and I think your favorite, too, uh, X-Files writer Darren Morgan uh-huh. was uh, the guy wearing the costume as this fluke creature. So he was uh, the wet so, toilet paper mummy with lipstick. Yeah, he had the fruit punch mouth there. Uh-huh. Uh, I, think, uh, I think he... You know, maybe that's why they called it a fluke man, because there was a man in it. But if I remember that costume correctly, it's not like there were uh, human reproductive organs or anything like that. Not that you could see. Yeah. <clears throat> so. All right. The fluke larva, though, would not be coughed up like they were in this episode. Right. So right. fluke larva primarily exit our bodies through the digestive tract and the feces. They're usually not coughed up. And this is a common thing for lots of types of parasites that get in your body. Right. They reproduce by by making you. Ha- so a lot of them cause diarrhea and mm-hmm. stuff to be expelled in your feces deliberately or they just get out kind of passively that way. Hopefully to get into water supply or to be eaten by some creature that'll eat your feces to make it to the next stage in their life cycle. And this is a common theme of the parasites in the X-Files, too. Uh, We're going to talk about ice later, and that is also how that particular uh, creature exits your body. But, yeah, even in real life with lung flukes, which are attached to your lungs, uh, you cough up their eggs if you have them in you. But you re-swallow them, so they pass down through your digestive tract. It's not like you're spitting up these fluke eggs and then they hatch everywhere, right? Because then how would the snails get to them? I have to imagine it would be an evolutionary disadvantage for a parasite to exit the body coughing up huge, (laughs) mature worms. Yeah. Because it seems like that'd be so alarming, other creatures would immediately want to get away from that creature and not become new hosts. Yeah, it works great for TV, right? Like these bloody flukes in the shower, but it, it but doesn't. Parasitism is a stealth game. Exactly. Yeah. And so uh, Cavellos also notes, you know, yes, radiation does produce mutations, but probably not as dramatic a change as what we see with the fluke man. Right? Well, this is a common thing we see in science fiction is sort of a very loose understanding of the idea of how radiation causes mutations mm-hmm. in organisms like radiation can encourage the mutation rate, especially like in your germ cells. If you're exposed to more radiation, you might give birth to children that have more mutations than average. But generally, like if you're hanging out near the near the reactor wreckage in Chernobyl, that's not going <laughs> to yeah. that's not going to make you into a different kind of animal. It's probably right. just going to kill you. Right. Yeah. You're more likely to get sick, uh, have cellular degeneration or deterioration or uh, just die. Yeah. Um, 
and so, okay, uh, Fluke Man, actually, you know, Robert wrote about Fluke Man years ago for Stuff to Blow Your Mind. If mm-hmm. you go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com, there's a great Monster of the Week piece that he wrote about uh, Fluke Man and flukes in general. So if you're you're interested in more about this, go check that out. And we also dug up a little bit of information uh, that apparently in 2009 and 2010, well after this book was written and after the X-Files was over, U.S. flukeworm infections increased significantly. And there's a really weird reason why. It's because people were taking a lot more river cruise trips. You know, those ones where you like you get on those. um What do they call them? Those kinds of boats. I'm not quite sure. River boats. Maybe they're river paddle boats. boats. Yeah. Paddle boats. That's what I'm thinking of. Uh, and they sort Wait, a paddle boat with that. That wouldn't be a cruise boat, would it? Steamboats. Sure. It's a boat boat. <laughs> Anyway, uh, so it's a parasite on these boats. (laughs) Yeah, they're designed specifically for you to join us on the luxurious parasite cruise. They were feeding people raw crawfish and, uh, you know, uh, basically these raw crawfish were infected with the the fluke larva like we'd been talking about. Gross. Um, And so, yeah, uh, in the previous 40 years before that, there had only been seven cases of fluke worm infection in North America, but just in 2009 and 2010, there were nine uh, because of this particular thing. So I'd like to think in the last five years that these river boats have stopped uh, giving people raw crawfish and growing potential fluke mans inside of them. One would hope so. Well, of course, the host is not the only episode of the X-Files to feature parasites. Parasites are a really common theme, especially on these Monster of the Week episodes, mm-hmm. because, I mean, it, it's it's fertile ground to uh, to mine, I would say. Oh, yeah. For it, it's sort of mixing metaphors, isn't it? Fertile ground, you <laughs> mine fertile ground. Anyway, it, it's a good place to look if you want some ideas for weird ways that animals Animals, especially mutations or aliens or something, could take advantage of the human body in ways that make us squirm. Yeah. And so another one of these episodes that addresses parasitism in a particularly gross yet maybe scientifically interesting way is called yeah. F. Emasculata. Yeah. And uh, they're more focusing on something. That, there's a differentiation here that we'll, we'll call out in a minute. They're parasitoids, not uh-huh. necessarily parasites. Uh, but the premise of this episode is that oh, I don't even remember where it was. It's Maybe in like South a America or something. It, well, where the bug originally came from. There's some kind of bug. It's like a beetle, and it carries a disease that has one of these parasitoids. And yeah, uh, they're in a prison. Somebody mails a leg of boar, I think, <laughs> to a, a prisoner that's in, and this leg of boar is infected with this parasitoid. Uh, and so subsequently these two prisoners get infected as well, but they just happen to escape the prison. And so the episode is basically Mulder and Scully chasing these guys across the United States to make sure that they don't spread this plague. Okay. Now what kind of infection is this? Is it, is it, does it kind of outwardly resemble a bacterial infection or something? Uh, it's super gross. The, it attacks the human immune system, causing pustules to form on your skin. Nice. Uh, and, it, and that leads to death within 36 hours. But the way that it spreads is the pustules erupt. Uh, so these they pop, goo- gooey pustules pop stuff and get goes their everywhere. goo on people, which subsequently get more larvae on the people. Yeah. Um, so... First of all, this episode presents the idea that this is an undiscovered species that nobody's ever heard of before. Uh, and, you know, I believe that they, they say, you know, that's why we we're totally unprepared for this as a potential health problem. Yeah, 
it's that is a hundred percent possible. Yeah, there are tons of species that we don't know exist. Yeah, uh, at the time when this book was written uh, in 1998, there were somewhere between 1.5 and a hundred million. That's how like vague it is. They don't know undiscovered species. Usually, there's small things like ants or beetles, like the, in this case, right? Right. But uh, the rainforest in particular is home to an incredibly diverse set of species. So that's why it's. Particularly difficult for us to catalog all of them. I know there have always been scientists trying to update this, the, the estimate. You know, what, mm-hmm. what's the number we suspect to someday be able to find of numbers of species on the Earth that are unknown? So it seems that the most recent estimate uh, that I could find, at least, came in, in 2011. There was a study that estimated that Earth has almost 8.8 million species in total, and we've only discovered about a quarter of that 8.8 million. Huh. Uh, so, like, I think their estimate was something like 1.9 million have been found. Uh, but then this is the funny part, right? The study says, well, we could be off by about 1.3 million species. Uh, and that this number could anywhere be anywhere between 7.5 million and 10.1 million total species. So it's, you know, again, like super vague. Uh, a broad reach, but yes, it's possible that there's a bug out there somewhere in South America that we don't know about, right? Well, I mean, that, that's certain Not, that yeah. there are bugs we don't know about. The question mm-hmm. is, like, uh, could we discover something that really surprises us? And I think that that's plausible. Yeah, we could. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so there's about 250,000 so, or somewhere between 250,000 to 500,000 species of parasitoids. Um, the example that they gave in the book was the scuttlefly. That's kind of one of the more well-known ones. Uh, it lays its eggs in the head of a fire ant, uh, and when that hatches, it kills the ant, and then that's not enough. It uses the ant's head as a little cocoon, so it, uh, a, a safe place for it to mature in. Like a like a cradle, mm-hmm. ant head cradle. And yeah, we know about wasp parasitoids that can take over ants, they can take over spiders and all kinds of other insects, and they either end up like draining their their life from within or they take their their resources or sometimes they even, you know, we've talked about like a zombie uh, type insects before on the show. They'll, yeah. they'll take over these animals, uh, sorry, these insects, uh, and force them to defend the parasitoid. Huh. Yeah. It's not pretty. So almost all of these parasitoids are what we understand as arthropods, right? Uh, yeah. and these, they sometimes use other arthropods as their hosts. Right. Which is even, that's like, imagine if a, like a little person climbed inside of you and was the parasite inside of you. If a little that, person. Yeah. <laughs> like a, like a, like a tiny little humanoid with arms and legs just climbed it down your throat and was the parasitoid inside you and then maybe burst out a week later. Why isn't that an episode of the X-Files? Well, I haven't written it yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, so we've got, uh, you know, they're not necessarily all adapted for mammalian physiology. This is what we were talking about earlier, about how these things are so fascinating, right? Because they're adapted very specifically for the species that they live in conjunction with. Right. Okay, so, but th- this parasite in particular, the F. emasculata, and I think F, that stands for like a genus name. So that's like I would the, imagine, yeah. the name of the species here mm-hmm. we're dealing with. Uh, what does Cavallo say about, about it in the end? Is it, is it similar to anything in reality? Yeah, so she says that it's similar to the blowfly, which is another uh, parasitoid that we're, you know, somewhat familiar with. 
uh, they don't actually kill their hosts. They burrow into wounds. These are blowflies. Yeah. They burrow into wounds and their larvae eat dead flesh. But did the wounds explode? <clears throat> they, uh, not to my knowledge, but it, <laughs> I believe with blowflies, like aren't blowflies, uh, the, the type of, uh, larvae that were used to clean out wounds during like, I think it was like World War One or World War Two. Like you could, you could put, uh, their larva in an open wound and it would clean out the necrotic flesh that was there. Uh, now obviously you wouldn't want to leave it there because then they would <laughs> hatch, but they, but they were used actually for that function. Oh yeah. I mean, maggot therapy is a, is a type of therapy that has been used and I think in some cases still is used. Mm. They, they eat the necrotic flesh and they leave the healthy flesh alone. So Cavellos makes a distinction though, and I think that this is a good one, that FMS Scalata isn't necessarily just the beetle, right? Uh-huh. And it it's two beings. It's the beetle and then it's a parasite virus that exists in the beetle and that grows inside the human body, suppressing the immune system and causing these wounds, which the bug sub- subsequently lays its eggs inside. So she thinks that it's like a two-parter here, huh. that there's more going on and that Scully and Mulder don't quite have the biology right. Um, and that the virus needs to bug needs the bugs to spread in the same way that the bugs would need the virus to reproduce. So in that way, it could be kind of like a like a composite organism. Like uh, right, if you look at a lichen, you know about lichen. Oh, okay, lichen are you know they're really two different organisms that have combined so closely together that they've formed a sort of super organism. Mm. Uh, lichen is is made of algae and then also made of fungus, and they, they've just become so dependent on one another that they're now like a single organism. Well, that's a great segue into our next X-Files monster of the week, which is another parasite of a kind, but it's a fungus parasite. In particular, this fungus lives in volcanoes. Yeah, so that would make it probably some kind of extremophile. Right. right. So we're talking about the episode Firewalker, uh, which is, it's I don't know, it's not one of my favorite ones, but I, the, no. the, the science is kind of interesting in it. And uh, it, has, it guest stars Bradley Whitford, which I really enjoyed. He's like the crazed scientist who's left over from this uh, mad exploration to the volcano. So Bradley Whitford is the guy from the West Wing who yeah. would do all those cute walk and talks. Yes, that's uh, him. That's him. He was also on that other Aaron Sorkin show. Uh, what is it? Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip? I don't know. I never saw it. It, it was a studio with a number. I just don't remember the number. I, I'm, I'm annoyed by the cute walk and talks, but I did like him in Cabin in the Woods. Oh, yeah, he's great in that, yeah. So the idea here is that he's a scientist with a, another group of scientists that are uh, studying a volcano. They have a, like, robot called Firewalker that they send into the volcano to do, like, examinations. The robot gets these fungal spores on it, and then it comes back and infects everybody. And the fungal spores grow inside the lungs of these people and then burst outward, releasing more spores, infecting more people. We're kind of seeing a theme here. Yeah, the bursting. (laughs) Okay, so the idea of an organism that lives under extremely high heat conditions is kind of strange because heat is one of the ways that we think of as being most dependable to 
kill off any organisms we don't want on something. Sure, yeah. I mean, like, so uh, you, you know, you want to sterilize silverware or surgical instruments or something like that. Mm-hmm. You heat it up, and mm-hmm. we typically think, well, nothing's going to survive. But that's not true. Uh, and uh, ho- Hopefully there aren't any extremophiles on our surgical instruments. But yeah, Scully says something to that effect in the episode. She's like, well, nothing can survive inside a volcano. This is her skepticism. Nothing can survive inside a volcano. But, you know, Cavellos points out extremophiles could. Uh, they grow best, actually, in these extreme uh, conditions, right? So, right. Well, the kinds that are adapted to really hot <clears throat> temperatures. Exactly. And those are called thermophiles. Uh-huh. Uh, we know about kinds that live near underwater volcanic vents or next to pools of boiling water. And, yeah, some even live <laughs> inside volcanoes. Oh, I've never heard them. of that before. Yeah. yeah, this is what, you know, uh, she mentions in there. And uh, so, okay, here's the thing, though. The heat range established in that episode of the Firewalker robot is 143 to 300 degrees. Now, I do feel pretty certain that no organism, no matter what, could survive 300 degrees. Yeah, and this is where Cavellos kind of works around this, is that she hypothesizes that it might not actually be an extremophile, this particular fungus and she but she's got an answer she's got kind, kind of like before with the idea that it uh fmesculata is two beings instead of one being she's got an interesting hypothesis that contradicts what scully comes up with um she says that it's unlikely that it would be a fungus in particular right because they, they the fungus wouldn't be able to survive but perhaps it that is the spore of a fungus that doesn't live in the volcano, but near the volcano. And ah. the spores were blown along to where the firewalker was maybe exiting the volcano. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, that makes it easier to. Yeah. So maybe it's not an extremophile necessarily, but they just kind of blew onto this robot or whatever. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it opens up a possibility. Well, but wait, hold on. If you yeah. can say that, it's like you know. Oh, well, well. Wait a minute. What if these aliens didn't really come from space? <laughs> come from space. They came from Canada. Yeah, I mean, it's true in that you know we get to the Canadian aliens in season seven of the X Files. But uh, <laughs> no, I agree with you. You're right. It's a little weird, but I like the, where she's going with this because it opens up the possibility of talking about. Um, one of the problems with these extremophiles is that, like, yeah, they can exist in these extreme environments, but then they wouldn't necessarily also be able to exist, for instance, in the human lung, right? So I did a little bit of looking up here to see, you know, what, what's the possibility here of these fungus spores blowing around on a volcano? Right. And sure enough, there have been fungal spores that have been discovered on the volcanic desert of Mount Fuji in Japan. So not inside it, but like, you know, the outside volcanic area around it. So, okay, it's theoretical that, uh, theoretically possible that one of these fungus has a spore. It gets blown up, uh, maybe to the lip or top of the volcano where Firewalker robot is roaming around <laughs> and, uh-huh. and then gets on it there. Well, I believe I remember in the show it was going around in these caves, these like hot caves that were yeah. lava tubes, I guess. Oh yeah. Around yeah. the volcano. So well, that might be a different kind of environment too. But yeah, I think we've, you know, established it's probably not possible for it to exist in a volcano, but you know, she's come up with her best possible answer as to how 
uh, this fungus could have ended up this, especially this unknown fungus, right? How it could have ended up on this robot. I mean, what does it, uh, what does it live on if it's in a kind of dark, super hot environment? Well, most thermophiles consume sulfur of some kind or another. And, uh, they say in the episode of Firewalker that this thing eats hydrogen sulfide. Huh. Um, so it's interesting though, cause if the fungus fed off sulfur, how would it still grow inside human lungs, right? Like, we don't have a ton of sulfur in our lungs. But uh, Cavellos, again, finds an answer for that. She says, well, actually, in some of the amino acids in our body, there are sulfides in there. So maybe it would be, like, somehow pulling these sulfides out of the amino acids. The problem with that, though, is that within a moist lung environment, if the fungus was producing sulfur dioxide that would turn into sulfuric acid inside <laughs> our lungs, which would, you know, pretty much kill its human host. Uh-huh. So Firewalker, not so great at the, uh, at the adapting, to, uh, spectacularly to, uh, exist with its host, right? Uh, right. Doesn't sound like it's, it's been really thought through as well. Maybe, I, I'd be curious to see who the different writers were on these parasite episodes and how much research they did. Yeah. So the other thing that's really unique about the Firewalker life form, I, I know that the robot's called Firewalker, but I guess we're calling this creature Firewalker as well, right? Uh, is that they say in the episode that it's silicon based, silicone based rather than carbon based. So almost hmm. all life as we understand it is carbon based. I think all, all life we know about on Earth is carbon based. I mean, uh, right. scientists have talked about astrobiology for a while has talked about, well, could there be life forms on another planet that are based on a different kind of atomic structure than that on Earth? Because, you know, we all are we all have DNA, you know, mm-hmm. or even, even viruses that, you know, don't have all of the characteristics we would think of as as being life necessarily still are carbon based and silicon is this proposed atom it's like well you know maybe silicon based molecules could be the basis for some other kind of biochemistry that's different than the biochemistry in life on earth right and i've read some criticisms of that i think some people think that's very implausible i mean you never really know for sure I well, guess, but- there's the classic Star Trek episode where they meet the silicon-based alien Horta. So, I've never you know, seen this. I mean, that's basically empirical science. Horta? Yeah, I haven't seen it either, but it came up uh, when I was researching the possibility of silicon life forms. So, yeah, you're right. Carbon is the most conducive <laughs> form for life, right? Because it can easily form bonds with other atoms. It's flexible. It can form thousands of different compounds. Those can be broken down and they can facilitate different processes within an organism, right? Silicon, however, is called, it's what's known as tetravalent. So the bonds it creates are either too strong to be broken down or too weak to hold together for these particular processes. So uh, they don't form compounds with what's called handedness. Uh, and the uh, the analogy that Cavalos uses here, which I like, uh, is that you think of a right hand trying to wear a left-handed glove. That's basically what it's like with silicon trying to uh, attach itself in a particular way with enzymes in order to facilitate life. Yeah. I mean, I, I yeah, that that's another good point uh, about the, the matchingness. I mean, would a silicon-based life form, even if it could exist, 
could it possibly parasitize a carbon-based life form? And would the carbon-based life form even have the kinds of molecules available that right. the silicon-based life form would need for its metabolism? And and much like how they were, you know, speculating, well, if you had this sulfur dioxide creating thing in your lungs, it would just make sulfuric acid. Right. Also, the the uh, products that would be emitted from these silicon life forms wouldn't necessarily work out, right? So, Well, th- this is a thing that comes through in a lot of these sci-fi scenarios about parasites is that mm-hmm. it, typically parasites don't want to kill their hosts. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you always have killing in in the uh, in the science fiction because it ups the ante, you know. Mm-hmm. If it just kind of made you feel sick and then you got better... That wouldn't be such a dramatic story. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, a parasite that kills its host is kind of doing a bad job. Right. Yeah. So uh, think about it this way. Okay. So carbon life forms, they oxidize, right? We oxidize uh, and unite oxygen, maybe during burning, it becomes a gas like carbon dioxide. We emit carbon dioxide. But if silicon oxidizes, it becomes a solid silicon dioxide, which sand. is also known as silica, which is sand, right? <laughs> so imagine this creature, I guess, just coughing up sand constantly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's one very simple reason why it probably couldn't support life. Although I'm sure somebody with an interesting enough imagination would be able to envision a sand breathing creature of some type. Well, Maybe actually, the sandworms of Dune. I think Robert and I, in an episode we did about uh, about alien life forms and the, the shapes they could take, we talked about sand-based life, like a life that that had the silica basis. And we, uh, we referenced the Stephen King short story, Beach World. Oh, yeah, which yeah. Which seems to have sentient sand dunes as a life form. So this next X-Files episode, which is yet another parasite, and this is... This is the last parasite. Yeah, right? and it's, well, at least the last one we're going to cover here. There's probably hundreds of parasites oh, yeah. at the X-Files, but this is another classic X-Files episode. It's I think it's the best episode of the first season. It's one of my favorites. It's called Ice. It's basically the movie The Thing. Yeah, it's an homage to The Thing, uh, and they're basically paranoia worms. That get inside you. And in fact, last night I, I rewatched the episode in preparation for us to record this because I was just I I really like that episode. Uh-huh. Uh, it's got some great moments from other character actors. Felicity Huffman shows up in it. So, yeah, in this episode, Ice, what happens? We have Mulder and Scully flying up to this Arctic research station because it seems that all of the people on the station have killed each other. Mm hmm. And well, yeah, the, 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 the cold open begins with there's just dead bodies everywhere and there's two guys left and they're about to kill each other. But then they turn their guns on themselves and each of them kills themselves. So brave. And they keep saying over and over again, we are not who we are or something like to that effect. Right. Yeah. Something like that. <clears throat> yeah. And so Mulder and Scully and a team of other people get there. And this team is kind of important because then we can we can play the factions and paranoia game. Right. And they discovered that this Arctic research station had come across. What was it? A, a frozen meteorite? Yeah. Well, they were they were researching and drilling down into ice that was inside a meteorite crater, I believe. Yeah. OK. Yeah. yeah. And so it was it was many thousands of years old. And they came across this organism that they brought back to the research station with them. That's a mm-hmm. tiny worm of some sort. And essentially what happens is the worm gets into people and turns them paranoid and they start a killing. Yeah, it, it's like all these other parasites that we've been talking about. It, it enters its host inside a larval form. In this particular case, it, 
it's, uh, it's real gross. It moves around on the back of your neck and somehow attaches to your hypothalamus. You can see it scuttling around under the skin. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not pretty. Uh, and there's, uh, I had forgotten about this until I rewatched it last night. But one of the ways that they can tell if you're infected with a worm is you start getting these like little black nodules growing under like your armpit and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But yeah, they say that it, it's uh it stimulates the chemical acetylcholine that's uh in the hypothalamus, and that this causes the uh the hosts in this case to uh, exhibit extreme paranoia and then subsequent violence. So that's why all the other scientists all killed each other and themselves. They're infected by this worm, and it's a paranoia worm. So let's set aside the alien stuff for a second and just say, is some kind of terrestrial paranoia worm plausible at all? Well, it's probably not an extremophile like we were just talking about earlier, right, with Firewalker. Because, again, how would it be able to survive in both these extreme cold conditions and then also in the relative heat of the human body? Yeah. It wouldn't be adapted for both, right? So Uh. it's probably of terrestrial origin, even though Mulder immediately is like, oh, this is from outer space. It's an alien. It was in a meteorite. We have to document this. It's proof of alien life, right? Right. But uh, Cavello says in her book, slow slow your roll, Mulder. It's probably actually terrestrial origin since it's evolved in particular to be a parasite with mammalian hosts, right? Or, Uh I mean, I guess the possibility is that this meteorite is from a planet where there are hosts that are just like dogs and humans. Because it also infects a dog in the episode. Right. Okay, well, as we've talked about in the other episodes, one one of the things that's common to these worm infections in the body is that they need to get out of your body to pass on to the next host somehow. And mm-hmm. typically they're going to do that through the most attractive method of feces, as we said earlier. Right. And yet again, in this episode, like with the the, the fluke man, uh, it's it's. Well, it's not entirely spelled out, but we know at least one person gets infected from a bite Mm -hmm. so that somehow the larva of this worm are in the saliva of the dog that bites a guy. He's the pilot and his name's Bear Uh, and Bear (laughs) gets bitten by the dog uh, and then he gets infected. He gets paranoid and he starts attacking everybody. Right. Right. Uh, So, yeah. Why? Why doesn't it just go the good old right out the digestive system? tried and true parasite method. Instead, it's this bite thing. And uh, the the other problem with this, right, is that uh, you're even if you're pro- provoked into violence, you're not necessarily going to always bite your victim. Yeah, it seems like they're, I don't know, relying vaguely on the notion that this is adapted to an animal that bites when provoked, though humans don't necessarily do that. I yeah. mean, I guess if you imagine it was adapted to mammals on Earth. A lot of mammals probably bite when provoked. Yeah, and I think that the writers were probably thinking along the lines of rabies, sort of like a combination of a tapeworm and rabies yeah. here, in that like it would be spread by a bite. Uh, or or in the episode, that uh, I had forgotten this, but rewatching it last night, they just at some points just take the worm and shove it in somebody's ear, and that's how they get infected, which is also gross. It reminds me of Wrath that. of Khan. Yeah, kind of Wrath of, of Khan. It reminds me exactly of that scene. So what's what's this stuff you said that the worm produces that causes the paranoia and violence? Would would that actually work? <laughs> so it's it's again it's acetylcholine. Uh, and it's supposedly it's interacting with that hypothalamus trying to trigger our fight or flight mechanism, right? Which would lead to the bites, I guess. Uh, 
But like I said, in the episode, they're, they're shooting guns at each other. They're punching each other. So I don't know if that does the worm any good. The acetylcholine, it has a way more complex relationship with the human body than just making you violent or paranoid. So, uh, you know, the, the, the research that Cavellos pulls out, she says that uh, toxins like sarin, like sarin gas. Yeah. Yeah. They can break that down and they can cause similar effects of paranoia, but at very low doses at high doses, acetylcholine, however, it just uh, basically stimulates your body's parasympathetic system and it slows down functions like your heartbeat, blood pressure, and ultimately leads to respiratory paralysis. So again, like the, I don't know. And there was another aspect in the episode that I noticed last night that they didn't really talk about uh, even in Cavalos's book, which is that this thing like exists specifically in ammonia. Like it's uh, evolved to be an ammonia dwelling worm. Mm-hmm. And I, there's some implication that there'd be a connection between <laughs> the ammonia and the acetylcholine. I, that doesn't particularly line up. Uh, so I, I guess we'd have to go, no, uh, this thing couldn't exist in the ice as it did, right? And also be well, a not par- exist in the ice and be a, and uh, be a parasite that could infect humans and other mammals. And then the acetylcholine, it would have to have a very refined way of accessing that within the hypothalamus in order to get those specific violent paranoid reactions out of people. Yeah, I think this is a thing that you see in science fiction writing a lot is they'll take a, a supposed fact about a neurotransmitter or some kind of uh, hormone or chemical that they know of that's active in the body and kind of oversimplify what it does mm-hmm. or overstate a correlation. You've probably read some stuff along these lines, for example, with the hormone oxytocin. Remember people oh, say, yeah. like, oh, this is the love hormone. It makes you be in love. And, you know, that, that's not exactly accurate. It's much more complex than that. It, it causes complex cascading effects and it is involved with other hormones and combinations of things. It's just not as simple as this one neurotransmitter causes this macro behavior on the, on the large scale. Exactly. So I think we can safely scratch ice off as being something that we should be a hundred percent terrified of making its way into the human population from watching this X-Files episode. So with that, I think we need to take a break, but we, when we come back, we're going to transition away from parasites and talking about some other strange science of the X-Files. Perfect. Hey everybody. So one great resolution that you could make for the new year is to maximize every minute and every dollar you have for your small business. And we have a very easy way for you to do that. It's stamps.com. Think about how much time you've wasted going to the post office. Joe, I'm going to tell you a story here. Christmas, uh, a week before Christmas, I'm at the post office and I'm like, oh, I really wish I had access to our stamps.com account because I get to the post office and it's closed and they've just got that one machine and I waited in line for 40 minutes to mail a gift to my grandmother. Ugh. Yeah. So think about how much time you have wasted, just like I wasted at the post office. You got all that stuff to deal with, but stamps.com is a much better way to do it. Just use what you already have, your computer, your printer, get official U.S. postage for any letter or package, and then your mailman just picks it up because that's his job. So right now, sign up for stamps.com and use our promo code STUFF for this special offer. It's a four-week trial plus $110 of a bonus offer, and that includes postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else 
click on that microphone at the top of the homepage and type in stuff. That's stamps.com. Enter S-T-U-F-F. All right, so we're back. We're moving now from Parasites into another classic X-Files uh, a way to come up with a villain for Monster of the Week. It's a mutant, right? Of course. And some of the most famous ones are mutants. Uh, we've got uh, Tombs, who we're going to talk about from the uh, classic episode Squeeze. Right. And, uh, of course, Leonard Betts. we got to talk about Leonard Betts. That's one of the most famous X-Files episodes. Uh, and I learned this from listening to Kumail Nanjiani's podcast, but apparently... It was the most watched episode of all time because it happened to air like right during a Super Bowl, like right after a Super Bowl. Well, that's not a bad one to do. I mean, yeah, it's a good episode. Exactly. Yeah. So let's just establish right up front uh, from Cavalos's book and also just from general science about mutations uh, that, the, you know, the possibilities here are about inheritance evolution and how mutation could alter instances of I guess we would consider them natural selection, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, mutation is an inherent part of evolution. It's uh, it's how random change occurs. But and mainly it's beneficial traits that are bred into a particular species, right? Right. Well, all kinds of mutations occur, and most of them have no effect whatsoever, or they are slightly detrimental. Mm-hmm. But natural selection tends to mean that those mutations are eliminated over time. Uh, And so if you have a mutation that makes you worse at surviving, obviously you're less likely to pass that gene on to your kids because you won't be having any kids or Mm -hmm. you'll have fewer kids than the one with the beneficial gene or at least without the negative gene. Uh, But are are we likely to encounter mutants in the real world as in mutants with these big noticeable powers with that powers fun- yeah like the X-Men. fundamentally change yeah yeah h- how they re- uh, interact a, with their environment are you going to meet somebody who has wings no you're not because in one sense yes we're all mutants i mean right. we all inherit some amount of mutation from our parents germ cells then our cells of course continue to mutate throughout life uh but in the most relevant sense we're not going to be able to mutate to have wings mm-hmm. or mutate to become goo and then reform into a human <laughs> or have any right. of these other huge macro mutations. Since mutations in creatures that survive into adulthood tend to have extremely small or almost non-existent impacts on the body. And the right. way species change over time is through the accumulation of mutations, Although- not through one gigantic mutation that makes you massive different. All right, so let's get into Leonard Betts then. So the premise of the Leonard Betts episode uh, is basically that this is a guy with a mutation in which all the cells in his body are cancerous, right? Yeah, so, well, we don't get there first, right? First, he's an EMT who gets his head cut off. Uh Uh-huh. Right. That, that's, and he survives the decapitation. Exactly. So he gets his head cut clean off in an ambulance accident. Leonard is fully decapitated, and later his headless body gets up, flees from the morgue, and gets busy trying to regrow a head. Mm. Okay. And I believe the way he does that is by, like, taking a bath in iodine, right? Yeah, he gets into some iodine. Don't know why. Okay. Uh, the I don't think uh, even Cavillos had an idea about why iodine. Yeah. But uh, he gets into it. He gets into a bath. Yeah. And a bath of iodine is creepy. I guess it leaves these weird brown stains on him. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that looks creepy enough, I guess. But and he eventually regrows a head through powerful cancer. 
Mm. The powers of cancer, I mean to say. He he yeah. is actually, we find out, made of cancer. And eats cancer. And eats cancer. Yeah. And so he's he's participating in a wonderful cancer economy that yeah. allows him to regenerate not only lost limbs, but a lost head. Now, I, it, it's not uncommon to hear discussion about uh, the extremely brief momentary survival of decapitation. Mm-hmm. But that's usually talking about the head surviving decapitation, not right. the body. So, uh, for example, there there are legends that the heads of people like Charles I of England or, or Anne Boleyn uh, appeared to try to talk after they were severed yeah. from the bodies of the people. Yeah, I've heard those. Uh, we did an episode of the uh, the show What the Stuff, a video show that Joe and I write for, uh-huh. and I wrote about uh, diff- the worst ways to die, and decapitations were in there, and and that those legends showed up. Right, and so the debate sort of continues about whether severed heads can can experience consciousness beyond a second or two. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But like we said, that's the head. Mm-hmm. The really weird thing about the story of Leonard Betts in this episode is that the body survives decapitation. Right. His body gets up and walks away from an ambulance crash. Yeah. Walks home. I think, or maybe walks out of the morgue. Somewhere and, to take an iodine. And, walks yeah. to the iodine and then, store and says, give yeah. me all of your well, he iodine. he has like a whole, I, well, I guess he it needs like to hold up cards. Iodine. Yeah. And then he, <laughs> uh, the best part, the dumbest part of this episode is Mulder walks in, sees a bathtub full of iodine and doesn't bother to look in it. He's just uh-huh. like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. And turns around and walks out and then this guy's body emerges with a newly grown head. Whenever I see a bathtub full of iodine, I reach in. Yeah, exactly. That's what you should always do. You take like a, a broom handle, just stick it in there, see what's going on. <laughs> so this might be kind of obvious, but it's probably worth saying, why does decapitation kill you? <laughs> uh, obviously, the brain, especially the brain stem, is sort of the command center for the impulses that control the body. So mm-hmm. without the command center, you can't breathe, you can't digest food, you can't perform directed movements of the muscles. It, it's kind of like taking the CPU out of your computer. You Just nothing much is going to happen. Okay. Then, of course, on top of that, you've got for the body itself, you'll have catastrophic blood loss. So many blood vessels carry blood up to the head and it's mm-hmm. a very high pressure. It's got to pump it up there really right. hard. So you're going to get a nice like Quentin Tarantino uh, blood squirting effect. Yeah. When you cut the head off, you're just going to gush blood out, have immediate loss, immediate okay. massive loss of blood. And that massive sudden loss of blood and blood pressure means blood can't get to all the lower body tissues to supply them with nutrients and they're just, mm. they're out of luck. And then, of course, the final thing is you can't eat without a mouth. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's a problem. <laughs> so it's pretty obvious why creatures like us can't survive decapitation. But one of the weirdest facts is that some animals sort of can. Right. Not right. forever, but I want to talk for a second about cockroaches. Now, I found this great old Scientific American article from 2007 that spoke to several experts about cockroach decapitation. Okay. So you can cut a cockroach's head off and its body doesn't immediately die. Oh, that's I mean, people out there, I'm I, I just kind of genuine generally don't like cockroaches, but there's people out there who are like deathly afraid of them. Uh-huh. That's got to really squick them out. So cockroaches don't have blood vessels and high blood pressure like we do. OK, so you cut a cockroach's head off. It doesn't gush all of its important fluids out immediately. A cockroach has an open circulatory system. This is what it's referred to. So 
it doesn't have blood vessels. It's just kind of a, it's just kind of a bag of juice. And <laughs> when you get it, when it gets its head cut off, it doesn't all gush out. It, yeah. it can just kind of like seal itself off and then it's, it's, it's still okay, basically. Okay. Being cold blooded, cockroaches don't need to eat as much as animals like us. So they can also survive decapitation much longer without eating, you know, because the head isn't there to eat. Right. So the body can kind of hang around for a while. You could also just like maybe take a, like a slurry IV and just plug it right into the decapitated head part. Yeah. Just feed it that way. <laughs> According to this Scientific American article I read, there have been experiments in the lab. Yeah. But yeah, they, there's this entomologist named Christopher Tipping at uh, Delaware Valley College in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, at least at the time. And, and he'd done a bunch of cockroach decapitation to study. Uh, he did it very carefully. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm sure he did. Uh, and then they got some dental wax to seal up the wound okay. after they cut the head off. And this prevented them from losing all their fluids. Sure, yeah, yeah. And they said that the de- the bodies without the head lasted for several weeks in a jar. Wow, weeks. Yeah, these things live for weeks without their head. Yeah. So imagine this, like, uh, performing this experiment on a human being. Uh, you cut its head off. You seal it with dental wax, and then right. you put it in a giant jar. Now, the body doesn't necessarily, even the cockroach body doesn't necessarily do a whole lot without right. the head. Right. Uh, uh, but insects don't necessarily control all of their body movements with the brain alone. They they were still able to do some things because they have these clumps of ganglia throughout the body tissues which can act sort of like simple local mini brains. Yes. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why cockroaches, uh, and this is something else we could cover in a cockroach episode, but why they're such a great uh, model for building robots off of, actually, because yeah. their legs and limbs act uh, both centrally from, you know, like a central nervous system, but then each one has its own independent uh, movement and it's almost like it has its own little brain. That's not the right way really to put it. It's not the right metaphor, but, uh, they act independently of the central nervous system. Yeah. One of the crazy things that was in this uh, scientific American article is that apparently roaches need their whole body in order to remember things. So you can also cut a roach's head off and the head can continue to live under lab conditions. But the head without the body won't remember things that the roach could remember before it got its body cut off. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. okay. So memory is stored there. So there are some animals that might sort of be able to live without a head for a little while. And that, and that's pretty creepy on its own. Now, what about regrowing a head as Leonard Betts does? Sure. Yeah. That sounds like kind of a tall order because you see a little iodine. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh it's it's not exactly a head in the way we think of, but there is an excellent little animal called snail fur that okay. I read about that can regrow its head in a way, though like I said, it's not like a skull with a brain in it. It's it's this tentacled upper part of the animal. Snail fur are these tiny stalk like animals that look like living hair and you can find them growing on hermit crab shells. Okay. And they give the hermit crab this look like it's a crazed insect in a clown wig. It's <laughs> okay. like this this hilarious pink clown wig. Yeah. And sometimes Fish come along and bite off the heads. They just chomp off the, the the end of the stalk of the snail fur that has its little tentacles. Yeah. 
And then the stalk grows its tiny tentacled head back in a couple of days. And it does this using retained embryonic stem cells that detect the head is missing and then grow to replace the lost tissues, which is kind of amazing. But then again, it's not a head like our head. Uh, yeah, yeah. But then again, there are some interesting possibilities about what humans could be able to regrow. I mean, obviously, we know that if you cut a human's arm off, they don't grow an arm back. Mm-hmm. But some animals do. And we also know that we our genome has the knowledge about how to grow an arm, how to grow a leg yep. and how to grow a head because it's done it before. This has already happened to you once. Yeah. The question is, why won't it do it again? Well, um, you look to like salamanders or newts for an answer to this, right? So they regrow limbs all the time. The way that they do it is by differentiating their cells underneath the wound by basically uh, making the cells go back to like an embryonic state like cancer cells. Right. Uh, so, you know, maybe there's some plausibility there with the whole cancerous uh, aspect of Leonard Betts. But, you know, as they grow, they recognize whether they have a normal or abnormal neighbor around them. And that's how those salamander or newt cells regrow into the right kinds of things, right? That's how they know how to grow into a hand or a finger or whatever you need. And they're mainly guided by fibroblast cells. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, there, there's the question of if an organism could regrow its head, would that still be you? I mean, if you could get your head mm-hmm. cut off and then grow a new one back, w- would that really be you growing a head back? Or would that just mean you were dead and then a different person that's basically a clone of your body grows a new head? Yeah, I mean, I think the sci-fi implication of the Leonard Betts episode is that his consciousness is like stored in every cell of his body. Huh. And so he can lose his head and then regrow it and remember everything because like every cell contains his, I don't know, like overall memory. Well, that's obviously ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. That, that <laughs> much fra- more so frankly, than being, that made. sounds made up <laughs> than being made of cancer <laughs> and growing a head back. Uh, but this whole concept of Leonard Betts being made of cancer. I mean, there's a reason yeah. they invoke this in that, uh, like we said, there, there is a sort of similarity or association between the kinds of stem cells that differentiate mm-hmm. into body cells and then be- become a new arm or become a head or something yeah. when you're, when your cells are dividing and you're growing and cancer cells, because cancer cells are cells that, that grow rapidly. They have uncontrolled cell division. And the other issue with them is that they don't differentiate into the body tissues that we would normally use. And normally a cell divides and it's a type of cell that is dedicated to making a certain kind of body tissue. It's the, you know, a right. muscle cell or a yeah. liver cell. And or it brain knows cell. what its role is. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. The cancer cells are more, they're just kind of glop. They're saying, no, I don't want to be a brain cell. I want to be just some cancer. Right. And in fact, for cancer cells to continue to grow too, like tumor suppressing genes usually have to be damaged as well. The, the gen- genetics that we have that, keep those cells from growing into tumors. So you're looking at either genetic damage, like a mutation, like we're, I guess, assuming Leonard Betts has, uh, or something that's epigenetic, right? Something that's external that changes the expression of those genes. But uh, Leonard Betts, uh, yeah, I don't know if that exactly works out. Yeah, I mean, part of the problem is that Leonard Betts' body cells 
couldn't really be cancer cells because he has a body. Mm-hmm. I mean, if his body were right, made, it would of, just be a pile of. <laughs> it would just be cancer. I mean, yeah. part of the whole thing, like we were saying about cancer cells, is that they don't make useful normal cells. Yeah. And so, if he's got muscle cells to move around and brain cells to think with, and cells for digesting food, and all, all the other cells that make a body, then that seems almost by definition not cancer. Well, so okay, so in Cavello's book, she has a hypothesis for this. She says that she thinks that the pathologist that looks at Leonard Betts cells and says, oh, they're all made of cancer, that the reason why is because you you can mistake some kind of cells, basically, for cancer. Like if you just look closely at the cells instead yeah. of outwardly at the at the macroscopic effects. Exactly, yeah. And that, like, uh, the, the, the distinctions would be if they're crowded together because of the rapid division. Uh-huh. And then also uh, if they have a small skirt of cytoplasm around them. So, you know, she posits that maybe this person, the pathologist, just saw that and went, oh, it's cancer. Okay, so we've pretty much, I think, debunked the idea that Leonard Betts is going to be a functional mutant, right? Right, unless he's a cockroach in disguise. Yeah, I, I just don't, and even then, I don't know that it adds up necessarily. But we, this is a good uh, opportunity for us to move from Leonard Betts, who was the most watched episode of the X Files, to probably the most famous, other than the Fluke Man, uh, mutant of the X Files, and this is, of course. Eugene Victor Tombs ah. from the episodes Squeeze and Tombs, another mutant. Yeah, so Eugene Victor Tombs is played by Doug Hutchinson. You you might remember this guy from Lost or from The Green Mile. He's he is a uh, uh, ubiquitous creep in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. He always shows up playing a creepy looking guy, and he shows up in the third episode of the X Files. So he's very early on, and he sort of establishes the the monster of the week model. I would say. Mm-hmm. He plays a serial killer with creepy glowing yellow eyes who has this recurring pattern where he hibernates in a cocoon made of newspapers and bile for 30 years. Then he wakes up, he kills five people and eats their livers. Then he goes back to hibernation. So that's back to the old, that, that liver is, is right. nice and good. The, some of those parasites love the liver. I or saw at least a, the fictional X-Files parasites. I, I saw a story saying that they uh, came up with the idea for him to eat livers after Chris Carter ate some uh, foie gras. Oh, great. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> it might not be true, but that that's the story at least. Uh, so anyway, he stalks his victims using a, a pretty amazing power, and that power is to squeeze himself into and through tiny openings. For example, a 6 by 12 inch chimney, a 6 by 18 inch ventilation shaft in an office building. Right, yeah. And at one point, he even seems to be trying to come up through a toilet sewer pipe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if I recall correctly, he is thwarted by a child lock on the toilet lid. <laughs> Which has got to be the most interesting way a serial killer was ever prevented from doing his duty. Yeah. So how realistic is this? Could even if you uh, were a mutant, uh, it, it, you know, which is basically what they just say in the episode. Right? Yeah. They're like, oh, it's a, it's, it's a, another it's a one mutation. of those Mulder things he throws off. <laughs> I think this guy's a mutant who's been living for hundreds of years or whatever. Right. Right. And of so, course he's right. Well, you know, Cavelos in her book points to. This uh, famous circus contortionist with the Jim Rose Circus Sideshow Act known as the Armenian Rubber Man. Hmm, okay. And I found a photo online of this guy was, uh, from a show he did in the 1990s where he's playing an electric guitar with his legs behind his head. Uh-huh. So he's very, very flexible mm-hmm. and can fit through tiny openings and stuff. 
this guy, according to Cavalos, could fit his whole body through the frame of a tennis racket. And not through those huge tennis rackets we use today, but those like tiny old tennis rackets you see people using in old movies. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which uh, yeah. that's this oval that's about eight inches by eleven inches. So that's tiny. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for Toombs's early stunts with the six by twelve inch chimney and the six by eighteen inch ventilation shaft. This might be a case where no superhuman mutation is required. Yeah. Just simply pushing the limits of human contortionist mobility, somebody might be able to do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, somebody who's a contortionist, somebody who's either practiced this or has some kind of physiological abnormality that allows them to squeeze their bodies. Right. right? But but is there any sort of inherited condition that can make you any more squeezable than even the average contortionist? Right, yeah. Uh, can you be maybe. Born, born, born Eugene Victor Tombs? Let, leave out the eating livers part. And, and the sewer pipe, which I'm going to yeah. get back to. Yeah. So maybe sort of. Uh, Cavellos points to a condition known as Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And I went and looked this up. And there are actually many different types of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And what they have in common is that they affect the body's connective tissue, like the collagen that your body generates to form ligaments and connecting tissues in between bones and muscles and things like that. Okay. And all the different types of this disorder affect the joints and the skin, and they're associated with what's known as hypermobility, mm. which is unusually mobile joints, both large joints and small ones, so like your knees and your fingers. Okay. And one particular subtype of Ehlers-Danlos is known as the hypermobility type, affecting up to one in every 10,000 or 15,000 people. And, wow, really? Uh, yeah, and the hypermobility subtype of the disease is especially intense in causing this hypermobility condition, where the hypermobile joints, uh, they're not really a superpower, but they are, they have a much wider range of flexibility and movement than normal people's joints do, but uh-huh. they're also prone to frequent dislocation and partial dislocation, which can be very painful and cause difficulty with many activities in life. Okay. So this is not a condition you want. So it's possible that somebody with this condition could contort themselves in such a way to make it through these very tiny openings. But let's well, establish this. There's two episodes with Eugene Tombs. The first is Squeeze. Yeah. And the the things that you described there, that somebody might be able to make it through those things. Like the ventilation shaft thing isn't all that big, but that they can or all that small, that they find him in, like in the parking garage in that episode. Right. But in the following episode, he does some totally bonkers stuff, like squeeze his face through like uh, prison bars and stuff. Right? Yeah, and, and coming up through the toilet. Yeah. You know, I mean that that's just. Uh, I find that unlikely. Right. <laughs> Even well, for some person skull with the, wouldn't with, be able to. Right. Flex. I'm gonna, Yeah. Yes, exactly. I mean, uh, I'll get to that in a second. Now, uh, there are some animals that have really, really amazing uh, fit through itiveness. Okay. Let's call it this trait. The, the ability to squeeze through amazingly small openings. And one of them would be the octopus. Mm-hmm. So I found this video. It's uh, Bermuda Institute of Ocean Services student Raymond Deckel and his advisor James B. Wood did an experiment in November 2006. And it's on tape. You can watch it on YouTube. Where they got this octopus, the, spe- the species was uh, Octopus macropus, or the white-spotted octopus, and they put this octopus in an enclosed clear plastic box underwater, and the box had a single hole in the side where the octopus could escape, 
except the hole was only one inch in diameter, like two and a half centimeters. And this was not a tiny octopus. This wasn't one of those little, little guys. This species can grow up to 15 centimeters long in the body and up to a meter long, including the arms. It's hard to tell exactly how big the particular one in the video was because it's very, uh, I've seen this video. I remember. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, but it, it looks at least two feet long, arms included. Yeesh. So it's big mm-hmm. and it squeezes out through the hole. It squeezes out through this inch wide hole that's mm-hmm. just tiny. It puts its whole body through. You can see the part where its beak kind of pops through. And then oh. after that, it's it's just going. Oh. And there's a whole other video I found that's sort of less scientific and kind of sadder of people on a boat with an octopus on the deck, and I don't know how it got there. I assume they caught it somehow. And it's a very large octopus, mm-hmm. and it pokes one of its arms through a uh, through a hole in the side of the bulwark on the boat, and I guess feels water down there. Oh, I've seen this as well. Yeah, and, yeah. and they're yelling yeah. at it. They're like, "Look, it's escaping!" Yeah, but it's sque- it's amazing watching it squeeze through this tiny, tiny slit, much smaller than the octopus's body. And James B. Wood, the guy, uh, one of the guys associated with that first video I mentioned, he explains that this is not just extreme survival behavior for the octopus. This is not like the the octopus equivalent of the James Franco movie where he cuts his own arm off. Right. And this is normal behavior for an octopus. Uh, in an email to National Geographic for an article about this, uh, Wood told them that octopuses typically live in layers with restrictive openings to protect them from predators, and every time they enter or leave their house, they squeeze through small holes or crevices. Okay. So this is just part of the octopus's normal yeah. life, to squeeze through, you know, a hole the size of a quarter or something. But do octopi, we've had this conversation before on and the show. And it's octopuses. Do, do octopuses eat each other's livers? And then live for hundreds of years in piles of newspaper. You know, I don't even know if an octopus has a liver. Probably. I don't, octopuses eat each other. They, mm. they cannibalize. Remember, yeah. we, we looked that up for a previous episode. That's true, yeah. They yeah. are serial killers. We established that before. In fact, sometimes when an octopus catches another octopus to cannibalize, it yeah. takes it back into its lair, and then it places rocks over the entrance to the lair so it can eat with privacy. So Eugene Tombs is part man, part octopus. That sounds about right. It okay. can, can squeeze and it, and it eats its own kind. So yeah. Uh, but of course, then again, the octopus, it's, it's less impressive for the octopus to do this than for a creature like us because they don't have rigid structures like bones, except for maybe the beak. Yeah. Um, so no matter how flexible or hypermobile, even if tombs had some kind of condition that caused hypermobility in the joints, he wouldn't be able to fit up a sewage pipe. Okay. Uh, because okay. being human, he, he has a skull and he has a rib cage and these structures do not flex. Yeah. They, so or if they do, I mean, the purpose of the skull is to protect the brain from physical trauma. Mm. So assuming he did have a flexible skull, like made out of flexible cartilage, like the bones of a shark might be or something, he would almost definitely suffer brain damage and organ damage coming up through a tiny pipe. He does seem to kind of have a bit of brain damage, doesn't he, in those episodes? Like, I remember him being like a little... uh like uh, unfamiliar, maybe it's just from him being in hibernation for dozens of years, right? But he's like very unfamiliar with how things work around him and how to interact with with other human beings. But 
Yeah, so maybe that's possibilities. Or it could just be because he's just sm- he, he's smushing his brain too hard. Yeah, he sleeps every 30 years. <laughs> maybe that's for, it, too. For 30 years, I guess. Okay, and there's one more episode where Scully and another guy both get tattoos that cause hallucinations and talk to them. Because the tattoos are contaminated with ergotism. Yeah, and the reason why we feel like we have to mention these is because Stuff to Blow Your Mind is just this year talked about ergotism and about the hallucinatory effects of them. So we're not going to spend a ton of time on it here because there's a whole other episode that you could go listen to it. But that is absolutely a real thing. Yeah, you should go check out the episode Robert and I did from last summer called The Psychedelic Nightmare of Ergotism. Uh, it is true that ergotism is a real thing and it is not pretty. It and is. it's not just ergotism uh, shows up several times in the X-Files. It's not just in that never again episode with the tattoos. It's also in some other episodes as Cavellas points out. Well, I mean, it's a convenient, it's a convenient plot point if you want to explain some violent nightmarish hallucinations. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, uh, if you want to learn more about that, uh, I don't think that you guys end up getting into why Jodie Foster would particularly be the voice of ergotism inside your head, but uh, as she is in this episode. Yeah, so this guy gets a tattoo, and it's Jodie Foster's voice talking trash about other women yeah, and stuff. Yeah, And essentially just encouraging him to do evil. But but this is, yet again, like another example of the writers on X-Files doing some research, and, and you know, they stretch things a bit here and there, but there's scientific uh, basis to this. All right, so that's going to have to be it for the first part of our uh, exploration of the science of the X-Files. But please come and join us again next time where we're going to explore some recurring themes of the show, like monsters based on insects and deep regression hypnosis. Yeah, we'll talk about alien hybrids and uh, all kind of big themes, uh, weaponized bees. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's going to be fun. So uh, if you've got questions related to this first episode or any comments or feedback, you can get in touch with us. On Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, uh, those are all blow the mind. Mm-hmm. And if you want to talk to us on Periscope, you can try to catch us at noon Eastern Standard Time on Fridays when we will be doing Periscope most weeks. Yeah, and as Robert would say, there you have it. Uh-huh. Uh, if you want to have more of it, though, you could go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com where yes, you can. we're going to have all kinds of things related to this. And the landing pages for these podcast episodes will link out to the various content that we've been talking about throughout the case. Uh, throughout this episode, such as the ergotism episode or uh, how to how to live without a head. <laughs> and if you want to email us, Christian, how can they do that? Well, for that direct form of communication, Joe, you would email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 